The Old Testament reading is Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 11 through 16, and this is the word of the Lord. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he, who is, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And now turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and this is our sermon text, our New Testament reading, Romans 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In verse 16 of this chapter, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek And in the section that we began uh, last Sunday, uh, Paul is showing us uh, in these verses that we heard today uh, why we so desperately need the salvation that only the gospel has the power to bring us. And we need this salvation because Paul says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what this passage is saying is that even now, today, God is revealing his wrath from heaven 
He's carrying out his righteous judgment upon the world, even now because of sin, uh, because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, when we think of the wrath of God or God's judgment against sinners, typically what we picture in our minds uh, is the kinds of cataclysmic devastations that sometimes God visited upon people that we read about in the scripture. For example, uh, we think of God's judgment in terms of uh, the worldwide flood that uh, God sent upon the earth that destroyed all life on the earth except uh, for those who were saved by Noah's Ark. Or we think of God's raining brimstone and fire upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or we think, to give a New Testament example, of Ananias and Sapphira who suddenly dropped dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. But God also reveals his wrath, or he carries out his judgments against people in less overt and obvious ways. And our passage this morning is about that. Uh, In Paul's world then, in the world that Paul lived in, and in our world today, God is revealing his wrath against the ungodliness, the unrighteousness of men. And he's doing so by his sovereign and his judicial act of giving people up or giving people over to the sin and corruption that has already taken hold of their hearts. In our passage uh, that we heard a moment ago, uh, three times we read how God has given up uh, people uh, to their sin. He says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Uh, Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And even though this sort of judgment that we read about here is not as obviously or overtly dramatic as other kinds of ways that God has judged people that we read about in the scriptures. Nevertheless, this judgment of God, this work of God is just as dreadful and it is just as sobering to consider. And as we look at this passage together this morning, I want to ask some questions with you of this passage. First of all, what is the reason for God's carrying out this uh, dreadful judgment of giving people over to their sin. Uh, The second question is, what is the result? Or what are the results of this judgment? And since this passage deals with a kind of sexual sin that is extremely relevant to our particular uh, moment in time, given the day and the age in which we live, I also want to ask this question with you. What must we do as Christians, what must we do as the church, Living in a world, to be faithful to Christ, what must we do uh, as we live in a world that is currently under this very same judgment that Paul is describing? So the first question is this. What is the reason for God carrying out this judgment? Well, the reason for this judgment, this revealing of his wrath from heaven, is because in our sin and unbelief we have exchanged God's glory, God's truth, and God's worship for something else. One author has called this the perilous exchange. Paul says in verses 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So by nature, in our sin, we did not seek out the glory that God alone possesses in infinity. God alone is glorious and worthy of praise, but in our sin, we did not seek that glory. Rather, we sought and ascribed glory to things that are inglorious, to man, birds and animals, even creeping things. And not only that, but we trade in the truth, the perfect truth of God, for what is a lie. Paul says in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And the way in which we express having exchanged the glory of God for that which is inglorious, for exchanged the truth of God for that which is a lie, the way in which we express that is that we worship not the true God, but we worship the creature, what God has made. And so rather than devoting ourselves to serving, obeying, finding our heart's treasure in the creator, we in our sin, we have worshiped that which God has made, the creature. Verse 25, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so in this description of humanity, in this description of who we are apart from grace in our sin by nature, Paul is saying, the word of God is declaring to us that by nature we are idolaters. This is what we are apart from grace. We reject the true and living God. And in his place we set up idols. Idols that are false and dead. And we bow down to them. We make them our gods. And we become like them. You've heard it said that ideas have consequences Uh, That is also very true when it comes to worship. Uh, Whom or what we worship has uh, consequences. And the consequences of false worship are dire. They are deadly. According to this passage, at some point, when people are engaged in this false worship, exchanging God's glory for the creature, at some point, the Lord judicially gives those people over to their sin. He gives people over to worship the idols of their hearts. And that brings us to the second question I wanted to ask this morning. What is the result of this judgment? So the reason for this judgment is because people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But what is the result of this judgment? Paul describes for us two results of God's revealing his wrath from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. The first result is the sin of homosexuality. Paul says in verse 24, he says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then in verses 26 and 27, Paul tells us exactly what he had in mind when he wrote about the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And what he had in mind is this, same-sex sexual relations. He says in verse 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now, the only possible way to interpret uh, this passage of Scripture, these verses... 
And the only possible way to interpret every other passage of Scripture that touches on this subject of homosexuality is to say, to conclude, that the Bible's assessment of same-sex sexual relations is clearly and consistently and thoroughly negative. In other words, if the Scripture is a true revelation of the mind and will of God, which it is, then based not only on this passage, but on other passages that we don't have time to look at, but based on this passage alone, the desire for the practice of homosexual relations is unequivocally condemned by God as sinful, and it is contrary to his will for us. Now, some have argued that what Paul is really denouncing here is not all homosexual conduct, but only that which is uh, abused, uh, promiscuity, exploitation, and so on. And so this argument says that Scripture does not condemn a committed and exclusive intimate union of two people of the same sex. And so it's not all homosexual desire and conduct that is sinful, according to this argument, but just the wrong ways that some people engage in it. But one problem with the argument is that the language of Scripture, including here, is always absolute and universal in its condemnation of homosexuality. You'll notice that Paul here does not qualify or limit his words against homosexual passions or conduct in any way. And so it's not the case that the Bible affirms uh, by silence some expressions of homosexuality on one hand and on the other hand condemns others. According to Scripture, according to what we read in the Bible, homosexuality is always wrong. But even more important than that is what Paul does say about this sin. He says in verse 26 that it is contrary to nature. It is against nature. And then in verses 26 and, 7, 26 and 27, the apostle characterizes heterosexual relations as natural. And so what Paul is referring to here is the natural order of creation, the nature that he gave us in creating us. God created man, male and female. God gave to Adam, the man, Eve, the woman, to be his wife. And through that physical union, uh, their marriage, they were to be fruitful and to multiply. That is the nature that God has given us at creation. And this is, according uh, to this passage, this is to govern our understanding of sexual relations. In other words, the reason why we find in the scriptures a blanket condemnation of all expressions of homosexuality is because it is contrary to the created order. God did not create us to have these kinds of relations with members of the same sex. And for the same reason, it's also the case that the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality is not limited only to conduct or to behavior, but it also includes the desires, the longings, the passions of the heart. Now, I want to say this in the most pastoral, the most compassionate way I know how, because for many genuine Christians, this is a real struggle. This is an issue. But if homosexual activity is contrary to the nature given us as a creation, then so must be the desire for it, or what is called same-sex attraction. That desire, too, is a sin. It is a disorder 
of what God intended for us. It is contrary to nature. And Paul does explicitly refer here to the desire itself as dishonorable. He says in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And so there is no biblical category, contrary to what some say, there is no biblical category for someone to be naturally homosexual. A person may feel that way, and many people do feel that way, but the attraction, the desire itself, even if it it is not acted upon, even if it is unwanted, it is contrary to nature, it is contrary to the Word of God, it is sin. Again, I want to be as sensitive as possible to the fact that there are many people, including many true Christians, who struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, They have thoughts and desires that they didn't consciously ask for, that they wish that they didn't have, and perhaps they feel guilty, maybe dirty, unworthy, perhaps even hopeless. But the only pathway to hope for those who do struggle in such a way is to understand and to accept what the mind of God is concerning this issue. And from there, the pathway to hope leads to believing that God is merciful and kind, that he has given us his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sin and to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us, to cleanse our hearts from all unrighteousness, even the evil desires and the passions that are there. But we do need to ask the question, why is it in this passage that homosexuality is singled out as the typical sin of those whom God has given over to the lusts of their hearts or to, the, to, to their sin? Uh, first of all, as we'll see, in one sense, it's not the only sin that's singled out because as we go on in this passage, we'll see that Paul lists many, many other sins that are typical of those whom God has given over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. But homosexuality gets special attention here. And it does so because of the character of the sin. Again, Paul says it is contrary to nature. And it is a result of people pursuing a kind of worship that is contrary to nature. There is a a profound spiritual uh, disorder, an upending of the natural order when someone rejects the worship of the true God, the creator, and instead devotes himself and worships the creature instead of the creator. That is a perversion, a twisting of the natural order. And in the same way, this sin of homosexuality in the physical sphere, it is a twisting and upending of the natural order of things. And so the sin of homosexuality is especially marked by by that turning upside down of nature that began with the sinners exchanging the glory of God for images and for false gods and for idols. But then Paul goes on in verses 28 to 32 to give us an entire list of sins and evils that are characteristic of those whom God has given over to a debased mind. This is the second result of God's revealing his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the two results are, one, the sin of homosexuality, and two, this whole catalog of vices that Paul gives us in these final verses. 
And this is a dreadful catalog of vice and evil uh, that Paul says is descriptive of those whom God has given over to their sin. Now, as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, as those who have received a new heart, we as believers in Christ, as Christians, we are not uh, exactly being described here because Paul is describing what is true of of pagans, those who do not know God, those who do not honor God, he is describing what becomes of them when in their sin and unbelief they reach that point that God has given them over to this judgment and they are wholly given over to these sins. Uh, Paul describes them in verse 29 as being filled with all manner of unrighteousness. However, having said that, we need to recognize that we do, we do see here As we read these various vices and evils and sins, we see, we recognize that the seeds of these things indeed are in our hearts. We have been, or we have coveted, we have coveted, we have harbored malice in our hearts, we have been envious, we have, in our sinful anger, committed murder in our hearts, and we could go through the whole list and see how Although we may not be given over to these things, nevertheless, we are guilty of many of these things. And so, in this whole passage as we are look, that we are looking at today, insofar as Paul is describing the natural sinful tendencies of our heart, we can't read any of these things and think only of other people, of sinners who are out there, of them and not me. But we need to read these verses with much humility and trembling. Because here is a description of what we could be, indeed what we would be, were it not for the grace of God in our lives and in our hearts. And so we need humility as we read this passage. And again, this terrifying picture that Paul paints for us of human depravity that has been let go, unchecked by the grace of God, Uh, This is all the result of God's judgment. When he reveals his wrath from heaven against ungodliness, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is true of those whom God has given over to this judgment who have made that perilous exchange. They have exchanged God's glory, God's worship, God's truth for that which is false, that which is a lie. Now we live in a world today I believe, in which this bleak portrayal of a people given over to all kinds of idolatry and sin, this is becoming more and more a reality. Uh, This picture is coming into sharper focus in our very time. Because Paul is describing the hallmarks of a pagan people who do not know God, who do not honor God, and that is becoming increasingly true of our own society, our own culture. And in particular, we are living in a society that has not only tolerated and sanctioned this particular sin of homosexuality, but when it comes to sexual morality in general, we have experienced nothing less than a revolution, a true revolution. The values and the morals that once governed our understanding of human sexuality, what is right and what is wrong, morals and values that were basically informed by the Word of God, these have now been upended and overthrown by a new set of morals and values. And not only that, but what 
once was considered good and right and true when it came to questions of sexual conduct, sexual behavior, is now considered the opposite. And so what we believe, because what the Bible preaches, what the Bible teaches to be right and true and good is considered by the world, because of this revolution, to be wrong, immoral, hateful, even contrary to human freedom and human flourishing. That is the extent of this revolution that we have lived through. And this then presents us as Christians, as the church living in the world in which we do, this presents us with an incredible challenge. And this brings us to the third question I want to ask with you. As Christians living in a world that is under this very judgment that we read about here in Romans chapter 1, what must we do to be faithful to Christ? What must we do to be faithful to Christ in this world? First of all, we must be clear. We must be very, very clear. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the place for us to start in loving our neighbor in this world is by being absolutely clear what the mind and the will of God is concerning sexual conduct, sexual behavior. We must be clear, first of all, that sexual relations are a gift from God for our good, for our blessing. But we must be just as clear that God intends us to to enjoy this gift according to his design that is within the boundaries of a marriage between one man and one woman. But we also must be clear that what God condemns as sexually immoral, including the sin of homosexuality, that this is not just wrong according to God, but it leads to judgment and eternal destruction. First uh, Corinthians chapter one, verses nine and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So the Bible proclaims that this sin, along with many other sins, when it is when it has dominion over someone, when it's unrepented of, that person will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so as a church, as Christians, we must not add already, or we must not add to uh, the confusion, the darkness of our day by, uh, by denying or obscuring or minimizing the teaching of Scripture on the danger of sexual sin. Paul ends this section on a kind of surprising note. Look at verse 32. He says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what Paul is saying here, there is only one thing worse than doing all of these things that he describes in these verses. There's only only one thing worse than committing these sins, being given over to these sins, and that is this. It's approving and encouraging others to do the same. It's one thing to destroy yourself by your sin, but it's another thing altogether to destroy the soul of another person by encouraging and approving of their sin. And at that point, when we have reached that point, we have turned upside down the second great commandment. We are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. As the theologian John Murray put it, 
at that point, we are hating others, even as we hate ourselves. As a nation, we just spent an entire month giving approval to those who practice the very things that lead to eternal destruction. And we call it love. But if we are to truly, truly love our neighbors ourselves, we will be clear, we will be very clear about what the Bible teaches about the nature, the character of sexual sin and where it leads those who give themselves to it and do not repent of it. So first, we must be clear. Secondly, we must show compassion. We must show compassion. And showing compassion begins with this. It begins by you and I recognizing the common humanity, the common fallenness, the common brokenness that we share with those who are caught up in the sin of homosexuality. And from there, showing compassion means dealing with those who are enmeshed in this sin with courtesy, kindness, and respect. Now let's remember, the sin that Paul condemns in these verses is not the unforgivable sin. The person who is caught up in the sin of homosexuality, he is not some sort of, uh, this is not some sort of special class of sinner with whom we cannot relate. But the person who is caught up in the sin is a sinner, pure and simple, just as you and I are sinners. And their hope of salvation is the same as our hope is salvation. Just as we, because we are sinners, are only saved by the mercy, the grace of God, so too those who are caught up in this particular kind of sexual sin. In our Reformed and evangelical world, in the last 20 years, one of the most helpful voices to speak on the subject of homosexuality is Rosaria Butterfield, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with her, but if not, I'll Uh, introduce you to her. Uh, Dr. Butterfield, she was uh, a little over 20 years ago. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. Uh, She was also uh, a lesbian activist. And about 20 or so years ago, she received a letter uh, from a pastor of a local Reformed Presbyterian church. And unlike so much of the hate mail that she received, uh, this letter was very kind, uh, very cordial in its tone, And the pastor invited her uh, to dialogue with him about her beliefs and his beliefs. And the Lord used that humble and kind outreach and the friendship that came out of it to call Butterfield to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. And the pastor showed her from the beginning compassion and kindness and respect. And he became became the instrument that God used uh, to bring her to faith in Christ. And in her book about her conversion, uh, Dr. Butterfield writes about, after she herself became a Christian, she writes about uh, meeting a woman who was a member of a Bible-believing church, and this woman was secretly involved in a homosexual relationship, um, presumably uh, not uh, enjoying it or liking it so much, but somewhat trapped in it. And Butterfield asked this woman why she didn't reach out to anyone in the church with her struggle. And this is what this woman said. She said, Rosaria, if people in my church really believed that gay people could be transformed by Christ, they wouldn't talk about us or pray about us in the hateful way that they do. And I truly hope that no one will ever say that about us here at Mount Rose. 
that the way that we talk about or pray about people who are caught up in this sin is hateful. I talked about being clear. Uh, There was no one clearer when it came to questions of sin, particular sins, than Jesus. He was absolutely clear. But there was no one who showed more compassion and kindness to the sinner than Jesus. And that is our goal. When we, uh, as we think about this question, that is our goal is to be like Christ. To speak the truth, yes, but always in love and with the spirit of humility and compassion and kindness. And so we must show compassion. Thirdly, as Christians living in this world today, we must call people to faith in Christ. Now, if you take anything away from this passage, I want you to take this truth away. And that is this. That whether it is homosexuality that Paul talks about here or any of these other sins that he talks about, at the root of the sin is a deeper problem that isn't so much behavior and conduct, but it is a spiritual problem, a spiritual issue. And that is at the root of the sin is idolatry. It is false worship. God gives people over to these sins, including homosexuality, because they have failed to worship him as God. And so when we think of homosexuality or other sexual sins, we need to get beyond thinking of them as merely or simply problems of conduct or behavior. It is something it is something far deeper than that. It is a worship problem. It is a spiritual problem. It is a heart problem. And what that means is, above all else, what Christians and what the church must do as we live in this world of increasing immorality and sin and lawlessness, what we must do is call people to repentance and to faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our calling. And the world needs to hear that the God whom they've rejected has come to us in the person of his son, Jesus. And that this God, he loves sinners. And that there is forgiveness, there is true life with this God. And that only this God who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, only he can fill the heart with true peace, true life, true joy. And that this God receives every sinner who comes to him humbly by faith in Christ. It is our calling to proclaim this gospel. And for those whom God will give ears to hear the message, when they hear the message that God enables them to hear of the glory and the grace of the true God who was revealed to us in Jesus Christ, they will make another exchange. This time, a wonderful exchange. They will turn from their idols to serve the living and true God. And then and only then will we see in their lives a growing conformity and obedience to the will of God in Scripture for every dimension of of their lives. And when that happens, when they become true worshipers of God, when their lives reflect that, they will be a testimony to the world that in sexuality and in every other dimension of human life, the way of God is right, the way of God is true, and the way of God that He reveals to us in the Scripture, this is the only way This is the only path that leads not only to life, but to freedom and to blessedness forever. So the call of the church in this moment in which we live is to continue faithfully to preach the gospel. That is the hope 
That is our hope. That is the hope of the world. Let's pray.